Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, welcome to the For Your Innovation podcast. Today we're joined by Chip Walter. Uh, who is a managing partner at Marlin Spike Ventures. Uh, Chip, thanks for joining. Thanks. Great to be here. Really appreciate it. And maybe we can start just with your background. Uh, you have a lot of experience in the uh, defense and intelligence world um, and also some experience in venture and startups, uh, which is an interesting combination. So maybe if you could start by just sharing a little bit about your background and what got you to Marlin Spike. Sure. I know it's a, it's a, it's a good one because I think it's a little bit weird and it's circuitous in a lot of ways. Uh, before I go uh, into a little bit about the background, I just want to thank you for the platform for this. What you guys are doing is great. The opportunity to, to reach out and talk to different people about, you know, get different ideas. And I know, you know, how we go through this podcast, I'm really interested, one, to hear the questions and two, kind of hear what I say. But uh, no, this kind of platform is really interesting and, uh, and thanks for doing it. Um, I'd also like to say if we can, if I can, I don't know whether uh, this will be date stamped or anything, but uh, happy Veterans Day for all the veterans out there. Appreciate for everything you've done for this country. And uh, for those that are in service, it was funny. I had a, uh, uh, my son is in the Navy right now. He's out in Spain. He uh, is a helicopter pilot. And my daughter thanked him for Veterans Day. You know, thank, happy Veterans Day. He said, I don't think I'm there yet. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, you know, Veterans Day is for those that served. Memorial Day is for those that, that died while serving. And every day is for those that are in our service. So uh, true uh, gratitude to what they do out there right there on the front. So I really appreciate that. A little bit about me. 1983, graduated the Naval, uh, United States Naval Academy. Went to flight school, P3 pilot for about 28 years. Command of VP1, Major Command, CTF-67. Uh, during the end of my career, I had a fair amount of time in legislative affairs and had the pleasure, actually the honor, to run General Petraeus's legislative affairs shop in CENTCOM. And then I so served in Afghanistan doing the same thing, legislative affairs from in Afghanistan. Uh, he retired, I retired, and then uh, shortly thereafter, I joined CIA and ran CIA's legislative affairs. When General Petraeus left CIA, went up to KKR, I stayed in the, after we confirmed General, uh, Director Brennan, I stayed in CIA, went down in the Science and Technology Directorate and ran the Innovation Center, the Incutel Innovation Center, we called the Quick. That Innovation Center is kind of interesting because it, it really works the relationship between the entire IC and Incutel. Incutel, if you don't know, is, uh, it was founded in 1999 by CIA as the venture arm, the strategic venture arm of the intelligence community. For what it's worth, I uh, have a lot of respect for that team. For Chris Darby, Steve Bausch, George Hoyam, uh, Jen Hannenberg, Nelson, and uh, Megan Anderson, Tom Gillespie. Just a great team of, and I, and I think in a lot of ways, still the gold standard for uh, dual-use investing, especially for those uh, technologies that are aimed at the IC. After five and a half years of leading that innovation center, I put my resume out. I thought it was time for a refresh in the quick. 
So I put my resume out and was picked by our, uh, picked by Northrop Grumman to stand up their Ventures and Partnership Program. I did that for about three years, did some investments there, did a lot of pitch days in innovation. Uh, tremendous company, tremendous innovation. Um, but on that, during that last year, I had the opportunity to meet some of the people that kicked off Marlin Spike Partners. And needless to say, um, it's, a, it's a dual use, first fund, you know, emerging manager kind of platform. There's just so much energy and passion that I just, I just had to be a part of it, you know, towards the end of my, uh, my career. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't, I want to be very clear. I didn't run away from Northrop Grumman, great company, just like Lockheed Raytheon. They all are fantastic companies. But I ran towards Marlin Spike because I think Marlin Spike Partners is onto something. I think we have a great team with Neil Keegan and Mislav Tulisek. I mean, it's just, it, it really is a good team. And uh, we're moving out on defense, do use technology really strongly for investments already. So it's really kind of cool. So thanks. It's great to be here. No, th- thanks for the background. So maybe we can just go ahead and dive in. Uh, obviously, we're in a, a sort of a state of rising geopolitical tensions uh, between the U.S. and China. We've seen what's happening with Ukraine and, and Russia. And uh, I think the Ukraine-Russia situation has woken a lot of people up and helped people realize that you know, defense and the defense industry is, is critical to you know, not only our, our sovereignty from a political standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint. And so I'm curious, just based on your experience, kind of looking at the world now, where do you think the U.S. needs to be focusing in order to really bolster our defense and intelligence capabilities and you know, become a, a, a or continue to, to maintain our position as the, the dominant global power player? It's a, it's a great question. And uh, and I'll tell you, Will, it is it's not a short answer for that. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways we could go down this, because at the end of the day, the government tends to look at our position in the world as a sum of all powers, you know, it's it's all the powers come together, the whole of government approach. If you talk about the ec- economic power, you may take a different tack to- towards it. But if uh, my experience tends to be more in the national security intelligence ag- agencies, I look at it and I, I just think you have to have a robust national security apparatus. That means that you have to have strong policy. And I think we, we have that. I think you have to have a strong acquisition and sustainment program. I think you have to have a very strong innovation angle to that, too, because let's be clear, the primes put out a whole lot. They're very innovative, not taking anything away from the primes, but they tend to, they tend to move in incremental moves, incremental steps through the um, internal R&D. That's great if you're going to build a plane. That's great if you're going to build a rocket ship. But if you want to do something else and you want to have these small incremental uh, steps that actually can be revolutionary, I don't know if the average acquisition path is the way to do it. So I'm very happy that, you know, DIU was stood up. I'm very happy that Incutel is going strong. I'm very happy about AFWorks and NavalX and uh, Army Applications Lab, the Defense Works, Softworks, all those things. All those things are great. And I think as in total, that innovation needs to be pushing the envelope. Is it going to be as Bill Plant said just the other day? I don't know if you heard that, uh, his uh, remarks. He said that, hey, we need to be focused on production. We need to get stingers out there, javelins out there. We need to replenish our stocks. We need to be ready. If we want to be ready for war, we have to be ready for war in a short period of time. While I do believe that is true, and I, I do absolutely believe that we have to have those stocks, we can't take the eye of the ball down the road. So when you ask, you know, what, what's the state of defense and Ukraine and Russia and China, I would tell you that the acute threat right now is Russia, as laid out in the in the 2022 NDS. And I would tell you the pacing threat, as lined out in the NDS, is China. 
I think you have to have both those things in your eyes at the same time. You can't give up the short-term goal to help Ukraine, but you can't take your eye off that long ball because when China comes around, it's not, you know, it's the real thing, right? Taiwan would be a real thing, unlike, you know, pumping uh, Ukraine with some uh, weapons to keep them going. And actually, uh, I don't know if anybody on the podcast uh, is friends with or follows General Petraeus. He has a great post on LinkedIn every day and gives you the latest fact by fact layout of what happened that day. So, you know, hats off to the Ukrainians. And it's funny, when I was in CTF 67, I think I did eight trips into the Black Sea all at least seven times we went pier side in Sevastopol. And uh, Ukraine is just an amazing country. It's kind of funny, Sevastopol before Russia's invasion, you know, several years ago, it, it was actually dual split. It was, Sevastopol was the, you know, the Black Sea fleet for the Ukrainians, but it was also the Black Sea fleet for the Russians. So it was really kind of, it was interesting. Maybe we can dive into one of the dynamics you just laid out, right? You've got these giant, you know, the primes, doing amazing things. But obviously, you know, now at Marlin Spike and probably what we're looking at as well is, you know, these these innovators that are kind of disrupting the traditional way of going about things. And so, you know, where do you look for that opportunity and how do these how do these new players fit into this ecosystem? Again, uh, it's an interesting question and it's a little bit hard on how you look at it. Uh, the I would say what's interesting about my background is that when you were when I was running the quick for five or six years, we developed the problem set that we'd give to Inkytail. So I feel reasonably comfortable on what the intelligence community needs writ large. When I joined Northrop and uh, about a year into it, we started doing annual gap analysis for the for for Northrop Grumman. And what we found is that we found that there were five verticals. I mean, let me rephrase that. There's many verticals for Northrop, not that they have a lot of gaps, but things where they, technology can be used to, you know, be accelerated. When I came over to Marlin Spike, we carved it into five verticals. We have cyber, AI, ML, robotics, auto, you know, autonomy and robotics. We have space, and we'll get to that, I guess, at the end of the podcast. We also have uh, aerospace. So we have those five verticals. And I would, I would tell you that although the primes do a really good job at the bigger things, I think that there's so much disruption as you're laying out, and I think as our innovation hubs are finding the Naval X's and the DIUs and the Incutels, that we have to find a way to incent the primes to be more of a participant in this investment program. Now, again, background in Northrop Grumman, I know that they do a lot of partnering. I've talked to Chris Moran at Lockheed Martin, lots of partnering with startup companies, but a, but a partnership is more like a supplier agreement. Okay, it's not investing in the company. It's not, you know, getting on into the board to help the board to maybe mature that the board and the company, how they're looking at the defense department and how they can help national security. So I really think that the incentives are not quite aligned right. So and let me get into that for a second. And and for the audience, if there's somebody that says, no, I got it all wrong. Well, I could. But I'm looking at it from my experience and the experience that I see is that the mismatch is in IRAD. So any one of the top tier primes, matter of fact, the top five primes put about $6 billion into IRAD, internal R&D, every year. 
they're eventually going to recoup those costs. Those are allowable expenses that if they get used in a program, I guess there was a revision in 2020, but if there's a good chance that they're going to, that they are going to recoup and be, uh, that would be an allowed expense that they can do a government charge for. It's not that way for a startup. A startup uh, has research to develop a new wing, develop new code. They're not going to get reimbursed for that. But at the same time, so you have the, the primes that get uh, reimbursed for their R&D, but they don't get reimbursed if they do anything with a startup to help that startup. Now, if they give the, the, the startup uh, IRAD or you know, their research and development money, then they'll get reimbursed for it. But the, but the company won't. It has, it's eating its R&D out of its own high. So what we have to do is we have to find a way to get those primes to be able to say, hey, listen, I just don't want to partner with that company. I want to become a partner with that company so that I can mature it and develop it and get it into a program. I am a firm believer you don't take a startup company and send them to a service and say, go forth and conquer great company of six people and a dog. Go take on the Navy. Go take on the Army. Go take on the Air. It's not going to work. You have to find those ways to go in. And I think the primes represent one of those great ways to get into and onto a program to get that technology into the warfighter's hands. So, Chip, just in the way that the government buys software or buys hardware, uh, it's not as simple as selling to an, an enterprise company. You can't go walk on the door and hope that they fill out the credit, for, credit card form on your website. So what does it actually look like? What does the procurement process actually look like um, for, for someone trying to sell into the DOD or the intelligence community? There's First off, I think that most people don't understand that there's really three budgets going on at one time. There's a, there's a budget being built, there's a budget on Capitol Hill, and then there's an execution year, the budget that's being executed. So the challenge when you want to get, a, you know, get your, uh, your software, your, your, your widget into a program, you actually have to have a requirement. The government has to establish a requirement or a request for proposal in order for you to, to provide an input to that. Now, that sounds like it's easy, but it's not. I mean, some of the OTAs, they require just a 15, you get 15 days to turn around, 10 slides, that kind of stuff. But for the big, for the big programs, these are, you know, stacks of proposals, stacks of pages that are trying to meet all the requirements and all the caveats that the government has put out that they want that product to be able to do. So, and then you have compliance pieces. It has to be able to work with other piece, you know, other parts of the program and how it's going to go in. So there's a whole grant, there's a thing called .no PF. So that is a, uh, a DOD that basically says, hey, if you do this and I do that and they go to work together, they'll work seamlessly. Not such an easy task. So the to navigate through what's called the federal acquisition regulations and actually get on our program is not for the light at it's just not for the light at heart. I mean, it is it is hard. It requires continual monitoring of the websites to see what RFPs are coming out. They have things that are called BAAs, broad area announcements, that also allow you to propose in there. But these proposals, uh, if they're much lower in value, maybe a million, two million, it's not so hard. But you get into the bigger ones, it gets a lot more complex, a lot more. You know, you know, we always say, you know, four people and a dog, you know, that start these companies. Um, it, that becomes very, very hard. I mean, just for example, I mean, it, just negotiating a term sheet. When I was at Northrop Grumman with a startup is hard. I would have a, a you know, I don't want to call it a stadium. I'd have several lawyers looking at it and they'd contract out for a lawyer. And so it was always a mismatch of, you know, impedance mismatch of how hard it was for a startup to get into the government. But I really do think I just want to double tap that again because I think it's really important. And then as we go forward on this, 
I totally agree with uh, the Honorable Bill Plants, his, his position that we have to replenish our stocks. Those are that production piece. Those production lines have to keep going because that imminent threat, that ta- very tactical thing is very important. But when you're talking about things that are down the road, three to five years down the road, you, ne- you need to incent the defense industrial base to embrace and bring on these companies to a stage with not just a partnership, but with investment to let them mature into the process and be part of their evolution to be a, a viable member to, the, you know, to add to that, that technology that's going to end up in the warfighter's hands. You don't want to go at this haphazardly. I mean, people say, well, look at what they're doing in Ukraine. Okay, I get it. A fire team in Ukraine, six people, seven people, they get a UAV, they put a camera on it, they launch it. Incredibly innovative, not saying it's bad at all. It is just perfect ingenuity for this war in that moment with that force. That is a perfect solution. And Godspeed to them. I want them to get more of it. I want them to crush, you know, crush up the adversary there. Absolutely. Our army doesn't fight that way. Everybody's interconnected. It's single, you know, it's a, you know, multiple flanks, multiple connectivity, multiple fires. It's very, it's a much more complicated, you know, art of war, if you will, that is going to take a lot of coordination and prior coordination when that battle hits. So if you're one of the primes like Northrop uh, and you go to partner with a startup, are, are you satisfied with a partnership where they're effectively a supplier or do they have the intention? Would you have the intention to at some point acquire that company? Um, and sort of bring them into the fold. And it seems like the primes over the last 20 years have been very, very acquisitive. I think historically, uh, a strategic, not just the you know primes inside the defense uh, area, strategic investors in general uh, acquire the companies that they invest in. I think it's between five and 10%. It's not a huge number. And I don't think if I was a small company, I'd be aiming that way. What I'd be aiming at if I was a small company is to get onto the stickiness of the government. So that's one of the nice things about, you know, the, our thesis, Marlin Spike partners, the dual use, and that is trying to, trying to get the stickiness and the, and the stability of government contracts on the government side, on the, you know, on the defense side, but then have the commercial upside when the markets come back and they're not so volatile. So the, the nice thing is every year that the, the NDAA passes, so we get the budget and, you know, those, so they're very stable. So I guess getting, getting back to your question, um, I, I think that there's opportunity for a prime to deal with a company uh, and work with them to get them onto a contract to move forward. Um, and I think when we were at, when I was at Northrop, we did, four, we did uh, three investments and we worked hard. Every investment we did, we, it was almost, the way we set it up was we had to have a customer as well as the company kind of slated towards a program in order to make sure that we had some sort of rank. We, we had direct line of sight to the transition to, you know, to, if I would say we try to build it to avoid the valley of death, we try to bake that in the beginning. D- did it always work? Uh, no, it didn't always work. But, you know, it was the it was our best shot at, at trying to, to, to bridge that uh, that valley because that valley is daunting. I mean, I'm not going to tell you to pull any stats on the innovation hubs. I'm not here to criticize. I just think that we in general have to get better at doing transition and and making that valley shorter and shallower. And we do that by the incentives that we have, the big players in the in the defense industrial base, play with the smaller players and be responsible in terms of bringing them along, getting them better, getting them stronger and allow them to allow them to use their innovative cycle and spirit the 
bigger company faster. So one thing to think about is when you invest in a startup company, let's say Marlin Spike invests in a company, or let's say, no, let's say uh, Lockheed, Lockheed invests in a company. They're not looking at a company that's just DOD based. They're looking at a company that has a commercial upside to it. So that means for every dollar Lockheed puts into a into an investment, there is, I'm sure, three, four, five, six, 10x times venture capital in that investment. So venture capital is paying a lot of that freight to get that company iterating. And there's just no comparison in my mind between the way a startup company iterates and the way a prime uh, you know, integrator iterates. It's totally different scale and slope. So just to kind of summarize this, you see one of the paths forward for increasing you know, innovation in the, the defense and intelligence community using the primes effectively as a channel partner. Um, and so they have their relationships. They understand how procurement works and startups you know, can create new, innovative, disruptive technology. And through a partnership, the startups can you know, iterate in the cycles that, that the, the prime can't take risks that the prime aren't will, primes aren't willing to take. And then the primes can sort of be the channel into the, the different programs in the, the DOD and the intelligence community. You said it a lot better than I did. I'm sure of it. Uh, but that's, you know, you're, well, you're exactly right. The whole idea is allow each one to do what they're best at. The, the primes understand how to understand the FAR. They understand how to get on programs, they understand how to talk to the government. Let the startups do what the startups are good at, iterating and making that product, you know, just iterate at the speed of heat, not at an incremental yearly IRED incremental uh, growth pattern. Do you think if you're a startup, if you founded a new startup today, you were doing something that was dual use, do you think uh, a startup, an early stage startup, can successfully focus on both the commercial market and these sort of defense intelligence opportunities? Or do you think early in their life they need to exclusively focus on, on one area? I think it depends on how mature that that company gets quick, you know, how it scales very quickly, how it grows pretty quickly. I think that one of the things you have to watch out for as a startup is doing too much. So even if you work with DOD, you have to be careful to have one target and, and actually get that right before you work, start worrying about other stuff. So, uh, you know, if I would take an example of Elroy Air. It's one of our investments. Dave Merrill's the CEO, great guy. They are middle mile cargo. They three to 500 pounds, 300 miles, and a hybrid electric engine setup. So it's really kind of neat. So you don't need the electric uh, grid out in the field. You can just have some fuel there. So I think it's really good. So he's got $2.3 billion of letters of agreements and uh, uh, with you know, comp- commercial companies like FedEx, Raven Alaska, CVS Health, uh, and um, I guess Bristol is the latest one. But he's also looking at Agility Prime and AFWorks. So what we do in, in Marlin Spike, we try to expand that out. So we want we got them in touch with the Navy. They're talking to the Navy. They're talking to Army through Army Applications Lab. Jay Wisham, who, by the way, fantastic guy, really doing a great job down there in Austin. You know, we, we had them in Modern Day Marines. So we are doing our best as a startup to try to push them forward into other areas. But we're very clear with, with Dave that... The priorities are to get that to get that flight and get it humming. Worry about the mission sets that might be different for the Navy and the Air Force if maybe you want to put a sensor on it. Let's get your primary mission down right, and then we'll worry about doing other things. Because if you get the cargo right, that, it, that goes both places. That goes to the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force. It also goes to FedEx. And if you're going to put make that pod sensors or something else, let's worry about that down the road. So I, your point is well taken. You don't want to get these companies doing too much with such a limited bandwidth that they have. So I would just tell you, 
that that's the beauty of the CEO. If the CEO is right, then that CEO measures that at the rate at which he's growing or she's, you know, she or he, she, he or she measures that as they grow. You try to do too much and you'll fail. <laughs> you, you will. Right. That's right. You, you can only juggle so many balls at once. Right. No, that's exactly right. And then, you know, one area where we've seen a ton of innovation over the past, I mean, two years, five years is space. This is becoming, you know, even more critical. You know, we see in the news, Starlink, probably the most notable, especially in Ukraine, uh, as important for national security. What do you see happening in space from the defense side and from the investment side over at Marlin Spike? Yeah. So what's uh, interesting is, um, so we have a couple of space investments. So we have Voyager Space, that's Matt Kuda, and, you know, with the commercial space station, one of the three selected by NASA to do it. Tremendous, uh, uh, you know, happy Veterans Day to him. I, I don't know if you know, he's an Air Force, uh, Air Force Academy graduate at 15, uh, Distinguished Flying Cross, just a great guy with a great vision. Uh, we were talking about this a little while ago. And um, so before I get into that, Say before I go down that rabbit hole, if you will, um, I think you have to think about space in two ways. You have to think about the national defense side, which may, you know, national security, national security side. The national security side may do things that aren't necessarily profit related and probably shouldn't be right They're National defense, security of our nation, that kind of thing. At the end of the day, I would I would argue that the space is the ultimate and most strategic high ground there is. You can do so much from that. And we're only we're only at the very early stages of that, and I'll get to that in a minute. Then you have the commercial side. Well, the commercial side is going to leverage it for you know business, for commerce, to make money. Um, we're going to see that grow as we get down this timeline. But what uh, what we see from Marlin Spike is that we see a couple things. So I, I want to just take this one second and give you a uh, two quick stories. The first or two quick thoughts here. The first one is we were at a conference last, uh, I guess, two weeks ago. And we're sitting around the lunch table and one of the uh, one of the attendees said, what do you what do you got? You guys do do use. What do you think is the next big thing? And we said space. And they said space. Space is Star Trek. That's way down the road. You, you know, forget it. What about like autonomous vehicles? That's the next big thing. We're like, well, you know, we get it that it will be definitely impactful. It will be disruptive to the way a normal person goes about their day when we finally do it. But I think we can almost touch that. You know, we can see we have a line of sight to that. You know, we know we know it's not there yet. We know the roads have to improve. We know the software has to improve. We know the, the sensors have to improve. But we can see that. That's pretty good. But in space, I don't think we're there yet. So I jotted down a couple of dates and I'll just give it just give it in, ter in terms of exploration. Right. So 1492, you know, every elementary, you know, that's when Columbus. Right. Well, the Wright brothers in 1903 is when they flew. That's 117 years ago. Sputnik went up in 63 years ago in 1957. 51 years ago, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, 1969. 36 years ago, 1984, the, the, the first space uh, shuttle flight. In 19, uh, let's see, 1998 was the first ISS module that went up. And then 12 years ago in 2008 was the first SpaceX launch that went into orbit. So from the beginning of Columbus, 530 years ago, all of mankind, we sailed across the ocean. 12 years ago, we got the rocket in. If you take a look at that on how that slope looks in terms of exploration, I mean, it's not linear by any stretch. 
it is, it is just going, you know, it is asymptotic, right? If you take a look at the cost of launch, just the cost of launch alone, you know, quick numbers. In 1984, I want to say it was about 180, uh, 180K per pound until we'll go all the way to 2020 when it was two, uh, 2K per pound. If you take a look at Starship when that launches, and hopefully it'll be in the next couple months or so, that has an opportunity to bring the cost down fourfold down to below 500 pounds. 500 or $500 per pound. Think about that for a moment. So, you know, whatever, let's go back uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it took a company to be able to put something up in space. In six months, an elementary school kid doing a project might be able to pay or his class or her class might be able to pay for something going up in a space. So when we think of it, when I think about it, I think that we're just in the beginning of this. And at Marlin Spike, we have a couple areas that we think are probably going to lead turn this piece. The first thing I would tell you is that commercial space stations. For we, the, That's the dual use of me coming out, the dual use of, of Marlin Spike. And by that, I mean... The Russians already have one up there. Third module was delivered last week. The astronauts are in it. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way those astronauts are three military officers. Uh, maybe four, but they're, they're all military officers up there. Uh, ISS, last time I heard, is coming down in a little bit, seven years or so. And that's only if the Russians hang around and play nice. That may come down before that. So I think from, from, my import, from, from national security and also the future of space, space exploration, I think getting the space, those space stations, commercial space stations up there is really important. I think communications, whether it's optical, whether it's around or up and down, I think that that's going to be incredibly important. We need to move that data and information flow around. The subset of that is we have to do it securely. So we have to really take into, into account the cybersecurity protections that we're going to need in that. I would tell you that navigation, everybody counts on, you know, I have my phone right over here. Everybody counts on that GPS working right when you're going to work in the morning trying to avoid traffic. GPS, if everybody, I think everybody understands, is Pretty, pretty weak signal, easily spoofable, easily hacked. We're going to have to worry about, we're going to have to work on that and get a sure GPS up there. And I'm not so sure that waiting for the, the new chip to come out is going to meet the time, timelines that we want. So I think there's going to, there's probably going to be some commercial aspects of that too. I think space logistics, I think is also important because now that you, once you get a satellite up there, since everything's software defined, why replace it when it runs out of fuel? Why not just refuel it? Or what if it degrades a little bit? Why don't you just move it instead of letting it degrade all the way and not be useful? So I think, you know, those are some of the stuff that I that uh, we look at and we're thinking about. But in general, I would say space for us is in that early stage, the infrastructure building phase. So we want to get it right. So we're looking at like space stations. We're looking at space situation awareness. We invested in privateer. You know, rendered AI may not be a space station, but it's synthetic data. And that, oh, by the way, that synthetic data can replicate what's coming off of any of any sensor up in the, you know, in space. So we're really trying to have a thoughtful look at this going from the infrastructure, allow that infrastructure to establish. Let's get that going. And then we'll worry about how we commoditize and what we do with it. Because once you get once you get Leo and Mio and Geo right, deep space, cis lunar, all that stuff becomes a lot more applicable. Hopefully that answers the question. It does. And I think we have a we have a similar similar thesis there, and the decline <laughs> the decline in the cost of launch is uh, opening up the world and the skies, I guess. Yeah. Well, that was kind of the point of the timeline I was getting at. You know, in just a very short period of time, we went from somebody walking on the moon to you know you know constellations are floating around this 
Earth at like 17,000 miles an hour, beaming internet down to the Ukrainian soldiers. I mean, you, you just, we're just so early on this. I wouldn't want to predict where this is going to be in five years. I wouldn't want to predict by any stretch where it's going to be in 10. I just know it's going to move a lot faster than it has in the last five. And Starship and anything we can do to lower that cost of launch, you know, price per pound, if you will, that is going to increase the ability to really revolutionize in an, you know, not in an evolutionary way, in a revolutionary way, what we get and what we, you know, what we can do in space. I mean, I, I look at it from my perch from more of a national security background. I have no idea what a doctor sitting in Johns Hopkins is thinking about what he can do in the space station, you know, in Voyager space station when it launches in 2025. I have no idea what he thinks he can do or she thinks he can do because when she gets up there and she's doing that, you know, that, that cell review or I don't even know, I wouldn't even go to say exactly what it is, but you know, she's going to rock it. You know, it's going to be amazing. And we just don't know that yet. How does dominance in space play out, right? Like we have pretty clear playbooks for, establishing, you know, military dominance on air, sea, land. How does it play out in space? Are, are we going to see, is there a future state where, you know, uh, China tries to shoot our satellites down and vice versa? You know, there comes a point where you have to say, I don't know. You know, I've deployed in with a P3 around China and around the, um, south, the south China Sea. And I would have never have thought that China would have built, you know, a, you know, claimed, you know, disputed, territory, the Spratleys, claimed them, started pumping sand in, built a runway, put a pier in, called it a military installation. I would never have thought in my wildest dream that that would have happened. It happened. What happens in space? I don't know. I do know. What I do know is that you don't have much of a vote if you're sitting on the earth and you're not in space. So what I do know is that presence matters in just about everything. So when we sail a when we sail a carrier into the Adriatic or into the Persian Gulf, everybody knows it. Everybody in there knows it. Whether or not you use it or not doesn't matter. It's presence. Presence matters. And I would just say that uh, in terms of where this goes, you know, I hope, you know, I think, and well, I don't hope. I pray that the both countries have this peaceful path forward, and you know, everything is great. It surely doesn't seem that way. Uh, Taiwan is not going away, and it doesn't seem to be. The, the, you know, the saber rattling is not stopping. Uh, how this ends, I don't know what time frame it ends. I, I really I don't want to I don't want to put any opinions out there because I don't know. I do know that the, the more position we have in space and the more active we're in space, the more we will work together to try to work to get to a peaceful solution. If one country has a dominant piece on that, they'll exploit it. It's just what countries do. So, you know, the better we're on a you know, that whole deterrence piece that the better we're equally matched, if you will, the less the other one questions whether or not they can win. And if they if they don't want to if they don't want to engage in that and they don't think that, you know, uh, that they can win, they're probably not going to engage. So we just have to make it hard. We have to make that calculus hard and that that calculus hard in space, in my opinion, is being active, being supportive and being present. And it's not it's not just saying, oh, they can do, you know, we'll cede space to the Russian. No, to the Chinese. No, we're not going to do that. Cede the moon to. No, we're not going to do that. That is the, uh, you know, maybe a more militaristic look at it. But 28 years in the military, eight years in CIA, that's kind of what you get. That makes sense. Um, so in terms of the domains of war, we have air, sea, land, space. Is the fifth domain cyber? I, I think that's probably a fair way to say it. 
Um, I think that there's there are domains and then there's cross-cutting domains. So what happens in maritime tends to be in the maritime. What happens in space tends to be in space. What happens undersea or on land tends to be there. I mean, you, obviously you can work back and forth, but cyber is one of those that cuts across. It's a it's horizontal, not vertical. So now you know when you when you go to any company and you ask them, give me your OV one, your overview one. You know they have all these lightning bolts and arrows and you know pointing from from space to a plane to a soldier to a submarine to a ship to a drone. That's that's great. And every one of those nodes has to be protected via cyber. So you know one of those things that it's a it's and it's um, a great point because we were just talking the other day. Uh, Misloff and I were talking about, and Misloff's very passionate about space cyber. And it's not necessarily that space cyber is totally different. It's just being it's being applied in a different domain with different outcomes and different expectations and different risks, and that makes it different. So yeah, I think I think cyber is that fifth warfighting domain, and that and I think that may be why we have a cybercom, right? So I mean, there's there's a piece on that. It seems like. AI is another that sort of cross crosses all domains. You know, we've seen this with some some of the like autonomous weapon systems. Um, obviously, AI also has implications on cyber. Uh, it seems like that's that's the other area that's or that's the other technology that's going to cut across everything. Yeah. So there, you know, that you have the hard hardwares and you have the software, right? So you know, your planes, your spaceships, and everything, and then you have these you know these fundamental functional areas that are going to cut. You know, cyber is one of them. AI is one of them. AI to me seems more to be, it's, it's not necessarily a warfighting domain. It's a contributor or a, um, a fundamental piece of the building block for those verticals where cyber is, cuts across and protects. So it's a little bit, and you can attack with cyber. Now I get you get to attack with AI too, but that AI is normally a supporting unit, you know, supporting code inside whatever doing the attacking, whether it's a satellite whether it's a uh, whether it's a, a ship or a plane or a missile or a bomb it's it's a little bit different where cyber is can be offensively a tool that can obviously take down stuff and I think that's our concern right our concern is that we want to make you know the United States and its allies very hard to go at cyber in terms of cyber and we want to understand what's happening around the world so we can be better prepared to stave off those kind of attacks because we use the word attack um, very loosely when it comes to cyber, I think, where if you say, I was attacked with a bomb, you know what happened. When you're attacked by cyber, it's a little bit different. kind. So we want to be a little bit careful about that. Attack tends to think, you tend to think about combat. Cyber is a little bit different. I don't think we have those thresholds built yet. Or if we do, let me put it this way. If we have those thresholds built, I'm unaware of them. That makes sense. And I guess just to wrap up, one, one more fun question. You flew the P three around the world. Any any fun stories from the uh, from the flying days? That's a good question <laughs> because it makes me laugh in certain ways. Because there were some what I would say with the P three, it was an amazing plane. You know, four engine turboprop. A, you know, anti submarine warfare primarily. A, you know, ASW anti submarine warfare, and also an ISR platform with some of the sensors we had on it. You know, some of the most challenging flights were back when I was a lieutenant and uh, on our first uh, deployment, VP-23, we were, and it's just so funny because I was just talking to our old commanding officer, uh, Captain Ben Riley. He's still with us, great guy, fantastic. 
And uh, he was our, C our CO, commanding officer. And during our one deployment up in Keflavik, we flew on, I want to say, well, probably over 20, that's probably a better way to say it, over 20 submarines, you know, uh, Russian, you know, Soviet submarines at that time, Soviet submarines. And you want to talk about a uh, cat and mouse game, uh, try in, you know, in the winter in off of Iceland at, you know, 300 feet with, you know, ne not necessarily the best weather going after and trying to track a, uh, a Soviet submarine. Those were times that I remember very fondly because it was competition and the, the cat and mouse game at its finest. And then later in my career, I would tell you some of the times that I really enjoyed was when I deployed on destroyers uh, as CTF-67. Uh, that was a ton of fun as well because you got to see what the surface warfare Navy looked up looked like uh, up and personal and going into all the ports around the Black Sea because we'd go in, I'd, I'd embark just uh, outside of the Turkish Straits, you know, the Dardanelles, and we'd go to, you know, Istanbul, then we'd go to uh, Varna, Bulgaria, and then Constanta, Romania, and then Sevastopol, Ukraine, and then Batumi, Georgia, and then we'd Samsung, Turkey before we departed. And that was a lot of fun just to see those navies and to see how the other parts of the world, you know, treat maritime uh, domain awareness. So that was fun. And then I would just, my last story was that we've, I wouldn't say this was um, necessarily a happy time, but very compelling was we uh, were deployed to split deployment between, in Japan, between Masao and Okinawa. And the Okinawa crews would fly when I was the CO and the XO, or XO and CO of, of VP1, uh, we would fly along in the South China, China Sea, and we were intercepted more than once by the Chinese fighter group coming out of uh, China. So, and matter of fact, we were there when the EP3 uh, was hit. So yeah, there were some exciting times in it. Missed the Navy. Navy is a, and all the services. I mean, whether you're, you know, in the Air Force, Army or Navy, the ability uh, to serve your country and especially on Veterans Day for, you know, actually thanks for asking it. It really, you know, the camaraderie, even during tough times is something special that, um, you know, I'm glad I, I'm, it was, it, you know, people say, thank you for your service. You know, I go right back to him and say, thank you, but it was an honor to serve. And I think most of our service members believe that. They may not see it when they're being jammed on a watch or flying at two in the morning or having a, you know, you get the point. I mean, there's times when it's hard, but I think most service members, when they look back on the service, they go, wow, that was a good time. And it was an honor to serve the country. Thank you, Chip. We, we appreciate your service and, and thank you for joining us today on Veterans Day. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate it. And again, thanks again. This is a it's a great platform to get this kind of stuff out. Um, you know, so I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Say hello to Kathy for us. Of course. And Chip, is there any way for our followers to follow along with you or how you're thinking? Uh, do you post do you post anywhere? Is the Marlin Spike website the best place to go? You can find online. We, yeah, we, we have a website. Thanks for asking that, Sam. Um, Marlin Spike Partners, I think you should be able to find it on LinkedIn. We have a site there. Uh, we're getting better at it. We're, we're a young, uh, young fund. Uh, and then please, if anybody has any questions, it's chip at marlinspike.us. Happy to talk to anybody. And in particular, happy to talk to any, any company out there. And we'll see if we can help you. Awesome. Thanks, Chip. Great. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you. Thank you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results.
Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.